David's uh, song reminds me of, of uh, Tolkien's comment about the time when we get grown up enough that we enjoy fairy tales again. I uh, love that phrase, the king left his castle and came into my wishing well. Would you turn with me please to John 5? Gospel of John chapter 5. We've been talking about Jesus' miracles and the amazing way in which he uh, came into our life and began to work miracles here and there. I've commented uh, several times on the fact that he did not try to heal everyone that was sick. He didn't try to give sight to all the blind. He didn't try to uh, repair the damage that sin had done to everybody. He had uh, had a greater purpose in mind. He wanted to create in them a longing for the time when he would come back and fix everything. And he wanted to create in them a longing for himself. Uh, It occurs to me that that's why we do good. The gospel tells us that Jesus went about doing good to others, and that's why we should be characterized by what Peter calls good behavior. Peter says if we do what's right, if we show compassion to people and we, we care about them, then they will glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, in the day when God visits this earth, they will long for him as we do. And, and I think that's, that's why we try to redress the world's ills. You know, the world is bleeding from a thousand wounds and there's no way we can bandage every wound, but that's why we care about the fact that children are abused and women are battered and, and unborn infants are killed. We're concerned about those things. And we, we want to try to set things right when and where we can, not because we think we can fix this old world up. We can't. But simply by showing compassion and doing good, I think we create in others a longing for our Lord in the time when he comes back and does set everything right. This, uh, this miracle we're looking at this morning is the third in the Gospel of John. He must have thought it very important because out of an entire year of our Lord's ministry, this and the next one, the feeding of the 5,000, are the only two miracles, in fact, the only two events that he records from that period of, of our Lord's life. So John felt them very important. Let me read uh, the first eight and a half verses of chapter 5. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I try to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. I've mentioned before that in the days of his flesh, our Lord uh, was not omniscient. He uh, 
He depended upon the father for all of his information. He didn't know what was going to happen next. He went from place to place, and, and he simply did what the father told him to do. Our Lord didn't uh, go to this pool because he knew what would happen. He went to this pool because he was dirty. And he'd been on the road, and he needed to take a bath. Our Lord had traveled down from Galilee to Jerusalem for some feast. It's unnamed and in Commentators struggle over which feast this might be. There are oceans of ink that have been spilled over this uh, issue. Was this the Passover? Was this the Feast of Purim? But for myself, I don't think it's at all important uh, because John doesn't tell us which feast brought about this uh, journey. The fact was he went to Jerusalem. This would be the third time in the Gospel of John that, uh, as John tells the story, that he'd been to Jerusalem. But for whatever feast and for whatever reason, our Lord had been on the road for a long time. And he, and he came into the city and, and he went to the nearest uh, Roman bath uh, as you, today in, in, modern, in the old city, and, which is right in the center of modern Jerusalem. If you visit the old city, on the northeast corner of the city, there's a site that's been excavated that they are pretty sure is the Pool of Bethesda. There's an old uh, crusader uh, church located on the spot, Church of St. Anne's, and an older uh, crusader church underneath it. And uh, they found a mosaic on the floor, uh, which uh, depicts a pool with five porches, and they excavated underneath that church, and they actually found a large swimming pool about 60 feet long that had five five porches in it, and they're pretty sure this is the pool of Bethesda or Bethsaida. It goes by different names. We're actually uncertain of the name. But Bethesda is good as any... It always brings to my mind Bethesda uh, Naval Hospital because this was not only a Roman bath, it was also a hospice. Uh, our Lord came down into Jerusalem from the north. He would, he would enter the, the city through the area in the wall that's, uh, the, that today is uh, St. Stephen's Gate, and this would be the first Roman bath that he would encounter. And so he and his disciples went in, and there would be a hot water tub and a cold water tub and a steam room and all the things that you'd normally find in a Roman bath and uh, our Lord went in to cleanse himself and as he looked around he saw a large number of people lying about the pool they're 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 described here in John as disabled people but actually the word means helpless they were helpless they couldn't do a thing for themselves they had probably been to physicians and they had taken pills and potions and, and they had given up. They didn't really see any, any future in anything other than a miracle. And that's why they were gathered around the pool. And our Lord walked into this uh, bath and he saw these women and men scattered around the pool. And, and it, it touched him. He was filled with compassion for them. There was evidently a legend that had grown up around this uh, pool that at certain times an angel troubled the waters. Almost certainly something happened to trouble the waters because John refers to that, uh, that phenomenon later in the story. Uh, there are a number of artesian uh, springs and, and pools in Jerusalem. There's one down in the south part of the city called the Pool of Siloam that occasionally does bubble up. In fact, there's a tunnel that connects it to uh, another pool and and tourists have drowned in, in, in the tunnel, making their way through the tunnel, and the water would, would overflow. And so this sort of thing happened periodically. And evidently that happened 
at this pool, the pool of Bethesda, and a legend developed around that that incident that attributed to the action of angels. Angels would touch the, the spring and it would bubble up. Now, most of the modern translations don't include the legend. It'll be in the form of a footnote, uh, as it is in my new international version. Uh, some manuscripts, we're told, read paralyzed and they waited for the moving of the waters. That may well be in the text. But some less important manuscripts continue. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. <coughs> the first one into the pool, after each such disturbance, would be cured of whatever disease he had. And evidently some scribe in uh, later centuries added that to the side of the manuscript and eventually found its way into the manuscript, found its way into some of our Bibles, like the authorized version. But it's not in the best manuscripts. And it's not consistent with the character of God. Uh, That sort of competition uh, is inconsistent with the character of God. You know, it's sort of like saying last one in is a rotten egg, that sort of thing. And furthermore, the, the most needy people would be the ones that were overlooked. The least needy people would be the ones that would make it into the pool. And that's not at all like God. He, he simply doesn't operate that way. He's concerned about the helpless, those that cannot do a thing for themselves. And uh, so our Lord came into the, the pool, and he may have known the legend, but... Uh, that wasn't his concern. He was concerned about the people. Now, the interesting thing, again, is that he does not heal everyone in the pool or around the pool. He very well could have. It certainly was within his power, but he didn't. There were many, many needy people in that room. He picked out one who apparently was the neediest. He was the most helpless of the lot, Now, see, again, it's true that in Jesus' day, he didn't heal everyone. We need to realize that uh, during the three and a half years that he ministered, there were were thousands of people whom he never touched. There were many lepers that were never cleansed. There were many blind uh, who were blind who were not healed. He chose not to heal them all. He chose to heal this man, this disabled man, as my translation puts it, but this... This helpless man, perhaps the most helpless of the of the group. Now, uh, in reading through this uh, this story this last week, something uh, struck me. In verse six, we're told that Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. Um, many of the translations simply say that he knew he had been in this condition a long time, but I think "learned" uh, is truer to the text. Again, you see, our Lord was not omniscient. He laid aside that ability in the incarnation. He chose to be a man dependent upon the Father. He certainly was God. He never laid aside his deity, but he laid aside the independent use of that deity. And when he saw this man, he did not immediately recognize that he'd been there 38 years. That's not the point. Our Lord saw this man... He knelt beside him, and he began to talk to him, and he learned as a result of his conversation that this man had been in this condition for a long period of time, 38 years. He had probably not been at the pool for 38 years, but that was the, uh, that was the, the amount of time that he endured this 
this condition. And our Lord uh, probed and he asked questions. And it's, again, another indication of the heart of our Lord and the compassion that characterizes him and the fact that he sees and he knows. He knows your condition. Uh, You may not think that anyone knows about your hurt. You may not uh, believe that anyone is aware of, of, of how difficult things are in your life. And maybe they don't. Maybe no one else in the world knows. But our Lord does. He sees and he knows. Uh, I thought uh, of a hymn that we often read, often sing, Does Jesus Care? When my heart is pained too deeply for mirth and song, as the burdens press... And the cares distress, and the way grows weary and long. And then another verse raises a similar uh, set of questions. Does Jesus care when my, my way is dark, when a nameless, uh, with a nameless dread and fear, as the daylight fades into, dark, into deep night shades? Does he care enough to be near? And then uh, the chorus answers, oh yes, he cares, I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. That's what Peter tells us. Casting all our care upon him. Because he cares. He knows. He knows the duration of your hurt and your pain. And it touches his heart. And he wants to do something about it. He sees you in your, in your helpless estate. And that's why he asked the question. seems an odd question to be asking of someone who's been sick for 38 years. Do you want to get well? And it uh, makes me wonder why he would ask such a question. The answer seems so obvious. But it is true that some people don't want to get well. I mean, they rather like being sick because they then are the center of attention and, and uh, it, it evokes pity and, uh, from other people. I think some people are physically ill and stay that way because they want to be that way. And some people are mentally ill and choose to be mentally ill because they, they are the center of attraction then. It's a, a, a sort of emotional blackmail, I suppose, that, that people unwittingly use. And therefore, it is a good question. Do you really want to get well? Do you want to be made whole? And that's the question that our, our Lord would ask of all of us. Do, do you want? things to be set right in your life? Are you willing to go through whatever you have to go through in order to correct the conditions that brought about the, the affliction that you, you're suffering right now? Do you want that? Do you want it? As, as uh, uh, George uh, MacDonald puts it, he will carry us in his arms till we are able to walk. He will carry us in his arms when we are weary of walking. He will not carry us if we will not walk. If we do not want salvation, if we do not want healing, if we do not want him, then he will not force himself uh, on us. And that's why this is a good question. He addressed it to the man. He addressed it to us. Do you want to be made well? Well, uh, the man answers as, uh, as we would answer, not knowing who it is that asked the question. He had no idea who Jesus was. Uh, he, our Lord was not as well known in, in the, that period of his ministry. Perhaps he had heard of him, but uh, it seems quite clear that he didn't recognize him uh, as, as the Savior. 
And uh, his answer is, uh, is this, Sir, the invalid replied, the helpless one, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. I, I couldn't help but wonder as I read uh, through the story why he had no one to help him. Some people, when they get sick, get very, very difficult, uh, very bitter, uh, hard to live with, very irascible and downright mean-spirited. And uh, that's not always true. Some people uh, are get, uh, become more gentle and kind as a result of their illness. But it uh, struck me that this man was friendless. Where was his family? Where were his friends? Why wasn't someone there to help him? If they really believed in the legend, there ought to be someone who would pick him up at the moment when the, the waters were troubled and drop him into the pool. But there was no one there. I just think nobody liked him. He was probably a, a very ungodly person. And uh, no one really, they weren't interested in this man any longer. Perhaps for 38 years he had complained and complained and complained. And no one wanted to be around him. And so his answer is, you know, is nobody, there's no one to help me which is normally the answer that we give when we're, we're confronted with some issue in our life. Where is some man or some woman or some human being who's big enough, who's strong enough, who's able enough to deliver me? And in this case, there was no one. Uh, even if there had been a, a family member or a friend there, and even if they had been able to put him in the water, the likelihood of his healing was, uh, was very slim. There was no one but Jesus. And that's what uh, our Lord wanted this man to realize. Men and women will always disappoint you. And there's only one who can help, and that's Jesus. That's the only one that, uh, you know, the, the only time we can give help to anyone is when we bring them to Jesus. We can't help anyone. All we can do is take them to the one who can help. And so here he was, standing before the man, the only one, who had the ability uh, to heal him. And uh, when he looked up, after uh, expressing again his helpless helplessness, Jesus said to him, Get up. Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. See, again, uh, this thing gets biased because it happens so uh, quietly and Without much, uh, uh, without much show or drama, you, you almost miss the drama in it. Our Lord did not stand up and, you know, clap his hands and whistle and say, May I have your attention, please? Now I'm going to work a miracle. And uh, uh, abracadabra, shazam, whatever, and the man leaps up and walks out. That would be very, very impressive. But uh, our Lord didn't do that. He was perhaps kneeling beside the man, talking to him. They'd been chatting for a while. And then he said very quietly to him, but with firm authority, get up, pick up your mat and walk. When I was a kid, uh, we always read everything out of the King James, and I still remember the impression that I got when I read uh, or someone read to me, pick up your bed and walk. And I had a picture of this fellow picking up his four-poster, and, <laughs> and uh, that's pretty uh, impressive. But actually, it's just a little mat, a reed mat, or something like a sleeping pad. And he rolled this thing up and tucked it in, under his arm, and, and he walked out. It's this quiet word of authority. Get up, get up, Jesus said. And walk. And the man got up, 
And he walked for the first time in 38 years. He walked out of that bath and and he went down to the temple, which is just a little ways to the, to the south. That's what faith is. Faith is simply doing something that, that our Lord asks you to do. That's all it is. Someone has, has defined faith as our response to God's initiative. That's, that's a good description of, of faith. We, we think of faith as some monumental uh, effort on our part to believe something that's so incredible nobody else in the world can believe it and so we psych ourselves into believing something but that's not what faith is. Faith is simply a matter of, of doing what God says to do no matter what it costs or no matter how foolish or stupid it may seem. You just do it. Mary said to the uh, servants in Cana whatever he says to you do it! And they probably expected some some dramatic event, and Jesus said, fill the pots of water. Well, that's what you normally put in those pots. They were pots that were filled with water that you used to wash your hands and feet with. And they did it, and it turned into wine. Uh, the man that we talked about last week, the uh, nobleman, Jesus said, go home. Go home. Your son is all right. He's well. So he turned on his heel, and he, and he went home. Jesus said to this man, Pick up your bed. Get up. Pick up your bed and walk. And, and he did it. As you read down through the list of the heroes of faith, as we describe them in Hebrews 11, basically that's what every one of them did. God said to Abel, this is the kind of sacrifice I want you to offer. So he did it. He did what God told him to do, even though it cost him his life. And God said to Noah, build a boat. So he did it, even though he became the laughingstock of his neighbors. And uh, God said to Abraham, leave home, and I'm going to show you the place where you're going to dwell. And he left his family and, and his business, and he went to another land, in the most ungodly place on the face of the earth. He just did it because God told him to do it. And those people are, are held up to us. They're extolled as witnesses to faith. They, they witness that God comes through. It's by these simple acts of obedience that that the power of heaven is made manifest on earth. Uh, the angel said to Mary, this holy thing that, uh, that you bear will, will be the savior of the world. And she said, so be it, according to thy word. She just did it. She went through the humiliation and the embarrassment of, of apparently bearing a child out of wedlock. And, uh, uh, and, and she did it because God asked her to. See? That's what faith is. This man who had been been in this condition for 38 years. Just, he just got up, got up, rolled up his bed and walked out because, because Jesus asked him to. And, and that's what faith is. And that's what he, God says to us in our helplessness. We say, I can't, I can't live in this marriage anymore. It's, it's beyond the point of redemption. And, and our Lord says, stick with it. Stick with it. And uh, we have this relationship that we know is ungodly and it's, and it's dragging us down there causing us to fall into sin constantly and, and we know that to give it up means a lot of uh, empty nights and long nights and lonely nights and, and God says it's not right, give it up and we give it up and he comes through that's what faith is it's just a simple matter of responding in obedience to, to what God says for us to do and that's what this man did in his helpless uh, condition and he was, he was healed now, what follows are a series of encounters. First, uh, 
the Jews uh, uh, met with the man, and uh, they had a word to say about his Sabbath observance, and then Jesus met with the man, and then the Jews met with Jesus. But we'll talk just, we'll only talk about the first two. Uh, Let me read the last half of verse 9. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, which explains the problems that follow. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Actually, Mosaic law did not prohibit carrying a mat on the Sabbath. This was an add-on. The Pharisees were legalists. Uh, They added innumerable laws to the Old Testament law, and they strapped the people down with uh, restrictions and and laws that just took all of the joy out of the Sabbath. Sabbath was intended to be for man. It was an opportunity to rest, and they turned it around and made it a hard, onerous, difficult uh, day. And uh, the man wasn't breaking God's law. He was breaking some cultural thing, man's, man's law. Uh, it strikes me that that's what they focused on. They say, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. And he replied, the man who made me well said, pick up your mat and walk. Isn't that exciting? I mean, this man was known in town as uh, someone who'd had this infirmity for 38 years. He was a hometown boy, apparently, and everyone knew his condition. And they should have been excited. They should have jumped up and down with glee. But uh, they were upset because he was carrying his, his little mat on the Sabbath. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? You notice what they emphasize? He says, the man who made me well said, pick it up and walk. And they don't say, the man who made you well, who is he? They say, the man who, who told you to pick up your, your mat. They missed the whole point which is what we're sometimes inclined to do. Uh, I, I still remember uh, years ago when I was working with students, there were, there were a group of people across the bay in Berkeley They worked at Cal called the Third World Liberation Front. They were working with Maoist Marxist students over there, and they were right in the middle of all the, all the activity that was going on in the 60s and ministering to radicals on the Berkeley campus during the free speech movement and the filthy speech movement and and they looked as freaky as, as the students did, you know, the beards, the long hair, and the denims, and, and uh, you couldn't tell them apart, really. They, they just were there as a part of the group because they loved these uh, kids, and they wanted to see them meet, meet Christ. And they, they came in for all kinds of criticism because people centered on the way they dressed and the way they looked and the cultural laws that they were breaking rather than on the fact that, that these needy, College students were, were meeting Christ. I still remember someone criticizing the leader of, of, of the group, uh, saying to you know, upset because he wore a beard, and the, it made the classic statement: "It is not Christ-like." <laughs> and I still remember chuckling when I heard that because uh, if anything is Christ-like, it was the fact that he wore a beard, and. Uh, but, you know, people are like that. They'll miss the point. I can remember in Young Life uh, clubs, uh, kids would be out in front smoking, and someone would be all upset because they were smoking out there and missing the point. But what the man knew is that he had been, he'd been made well. You know, it, it strikes me as, as very, very significant that he didn't even know Jesus' name. 
They say, who is this fellow? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. It's so like our Lord. No fanfare. Not, he wasn't trying to attract attention to himself. He wasn't doing good in order to prove that he could do good. He did good because he was good. He saw needs and, and he met them wherever they existed. He's still doing that today. In the background, I think that's what he meant when he said, I'm meek and I'm lowly in heart. He, he went about doing good, but in such a way that uh, very often people weren't even aware of who it was. They just knew that something really significant happened. Those of you that fool around with computers know what multitasking is. Computers now have so much memory that they can do three or four things at once. And uh, they can be calculating numbers and they can be backing up uh, a disk and uh, they can be uh, doing all kinds of things in the background. You aren't even aware of it except your hard disk uh, flickers every once in a while. You can be working in one application while three or four applications are working in the background. And uh, that's, that's the way it is with our Lord. You know, we're focused on one thing. We think this is the really important thing that's happening. And, and our Lord is working in the background, unobserved, unseen, unknown, working on your behalf, doing good for you, setting things up, arranging appointments for you, his appointments, so that you're at the right time, at the right place, at the right time to meet the right person. That's just the way, the way he is. Uh, the, the next thing, the next encounter in verse 14 is our Lord himself with the man. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And then that threw our Lord into controversy with the Pharisees. And that, that particular uh, conversation is described in the verses that, uh, that follow. It struck me that uh, our Lord sought this man out in the temple. Apparently, he went to the temple to offer thanks, which, again, is an indication of the heart of the man. He had a hunger, perhaps, way down deep inside for God. And the moment he was healed, he went back to the, to the temple. Augustine has an interesting comment in his commentary on, on John. He says, it's difficult in a crowd to see Jesus. A crowd is full of noise. His vision craves secret retirement. In the crowd, this man saw him not. In the temple, he saw him. Now, there's more to that than just words. I think the man went to the temple with his heart open, seeking more of God, and our Lord found him there, which is what he came to do. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to save the helpless. And he went to the temple, and he found the man there, and he says something very interesting to him. He says, don't go on sinning lest something worse happen. And you think, my goodness, what, you know, what could be worse than 38 years of, of, of this kind of illness? Uh, is he saying he's going to contract cancer or he's going to contract AIDS or some frightful disease that's even worse? No, you see, he's not talking about, about physical disease. He's talking about the man's spiritual condition. What Jesus actually said to him is, don't keep on sinning. Don't don't leave God out of your life. Don't turn your back on God because a greater thing, a worse thing will happen, which is separation from him. You see, that's why our Lord didn't feel constrained to heal every person 
Sometimes sickness can actually lead us to God, which is the greater thing. Uh, the only purpose of sickness is not to lead to death. Sometimes it leads us to God. And he will permit an affliction to, to continue because it will do its work. It works for us. It leads us to the Lord. And uh, you see, that's his ultimate concern. That's why he didn't heal everyone physically. He wanted to heal them spiritually. He wanted them to long for God and, and learn of his love and come into a relationship with him. And uh, he might permit the physical affliction to, to continue, or he might heal as, as a symbol, as a picture of the greater healing, the spiritual healing that our Lord wants to, wants to bring to pass. Now, as I go back over this story and think about it, there's one lesson that comes through loud and clear, and that is God helps about, uh, God cares about us helpless folks. It really matters to Him when we're beyond help. That's when He is best able to help. Uh, I often ask people where it says in the Bible, heaven helps those that help themselves. And they say, well, that must be in Proverbs, or that must be in one of the Psalms. Perhaps that's one of Jesus' sayings in the gospel. Actually, that phrase doesn't occur anywhere in the Bible. I don't know where that phrase uh, originated. Actually, what the Bible says is that heaven helps the helpless. Did you know that? Heaven helps the helpless, those that cannot help themselves. Those who feel they've gone too far. Those who, who feel that uh, they, have, they have eternally separated themselves from God and there's nothing they can do to... To get back. The gulf is too great. Well, what you need to understand is that our Lord has bridged that gulf from from the far side. He has come. And he has manifested himself. And he comes to find us. That's why he came. To seek and to save those that were lost. Us helpless types. Heaven helps those that are helpless. Let me show you what Paul says in Romans 5. In fact, I wonder if... Paul wasn't actually thinking of this uh, story. He probably um, certainly did not have this gospel in front of him, but the stories must have been circulating. Uh, the book of Romans is earlier than the gospel of John, most likely. Uh, let me read verse 6, Romans 5, 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. The word that's translated powerless here is the same word that's used of the people that were gathered at the pool of Bethesda, the helpless. It's the same word that's used of uh, the man himself who was helpless. At the right time, when we were helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. Do you know how, how God feels about the ungodly? Have you, have you ever... Thought of yourself as ungodly? Sure you have. We all do. There are times that we look at our lives and think, you know, I, I, I'm the most ungodly person that ever lived, or close to it. And Paul is telling us that it's that kind of people that he came to seek and to save. At the right time, when we were utterly helpless, he came to save sinners while we were 
Still sinners that he came. Look at verse 7. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. There are a few people who are so good, they might uh, uh, evoke in you a, a willingness to, to die on their behalf. But how about someone who is so mean and so ornery and so irascible and so difficult and so hard to live with that you can hardly stand them? Would you offer up your life for them? Paul says, our Lord did. He did. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you think of yourself as helpless? Oh, that's great. That's wonderful. Because that's what we are. We cannot save ourselves. Only the Savior can save us. Let's pray. And let's, uh, let's prepare our hearts for this time around the table. We're going to uh, celebrate together the, uh, the uh, Lord's table as a way of remembering his death, which, uh, again, is the thing that he did because of our helpless condition. He came from the other side, and he laid down his life for us. Knowing that we're helpless, he became our, our help. And as we approach this table again, let's take a moment to search our own hearts, to thank him for the salvation that he brought to us, to thank him for the gift that he, of eternal life that he's given to us, to take a quick look inside at the failure of this past week and the, the sin that, that burdens our heart and to confess it and to put it away and to give thanks again for one who, who keeps on saving us. Lord, we, we want to somehow to grasp that idea that, that heaven helps those that are, that are totally helpless. We have been taught from infancy to believe that we have to do something for ourselves. We have to get ourselves free. We, we have to do something in order to... Uh, to prove that we're worthwhile or that we have something of value in us. Lord, help us to see ourselves as you viewed this man, uh, completely beyond human help, and therefore one who could only be helped by God himself. Help us to see that you love us in our sinful, separated state, that it's not your desire that we that we somehow set our own lives straight and clean up our own lives, but, but rather that we open up our hearts to you and permit you to do that cleansing work. And as we share this table together, lead us together, Lord, into a, 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 a deep time of worship where we sense afresh your love for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name.